Alrighty. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Uh, seeing some college students back, seeing some new faces. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, yeah, just uh, like Enoch said, keep the Mexico trip in your prayers. Uh, I'm sure they're having a, a great time uh, doing what they do. So let me go ahead and start with our passage for today. We're in the book of Galatians, and I'm going to read verses 19 through chapter 5, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, follow along. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19 through chapter 5, verse 1. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Uh, let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, I pray, Father, um, that through your word, through, through understanding uh, the freedom that comes with your promise, uh, we would be set free from slavery, we would have hope in you and trust you deeply with our lives. Um, I do pray, Lord, that you would be uh, granting clarity from your word, that we would be able to understand what's going on, and that that would really change us and impact us, Lord. Um, we love you so much. Uh, we trust you in the power of your word to change our lives and uh, your presence to be with us through everything. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in the book of Galatians, uh, we have been talking about a number of things, uh, but I would just sum it up and basically say, when people come to Christianity, they have certain preconceptions and uh, understandings of what Christianity is about. And I've said a number of times, Dan has said a number of times, people typically associate Christianity with certain rules, with certain moral behaviors, um, and in general, they have a picture of God who is restrictive, um, who's kind of a killjoy. Uh, you, you, you always got to be watching your back because you never know what your, your boss, the, the, the big boss upstairs, what he's going to think of you, how well you're doing. Uh, but in the book of Galatians, what Paul actually says is in chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set you free, which means 
the Jewish uh, people used to operate under a vast, elaborate, intricate system of ceremonial rituals, regulations, and they were, tr they, um, uh, Gentile and Jewish Christians, uh, when they put their faith in Jesus, uh, were no longer under the law, which means they no longer had to follow certain dietary restrictions. We use the example of uh, check your tag. Are you wearing mixed fibers? If you're wearing mixed fibers, you gotta get out. Or did you have shellfish last night? According to these rules, you have to get out of church. You're not allowed to be here. Those are the restrictions. And so the, um, the natural way of mentality that these people had was there are these vast set of intricate rules that you have to follow, and this is the way that we relate to, to God. We relate to God as mediated by these restrictions, right? And then Paul is actually saying, no. And in this passage, he is making a biblical argument where he is referring back to Hebrew scripture and saying, even in Hebrew scripture, you are not beholden to these restrictions. And he uses the example of Abraham, which we'll be talking about. Um, so that's kind of just a, a brief summary, but let's, let's get into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, if you have lived at all in this world, uh, there, is, there are what I want to call gaps in your life. Uh, there is a gap between your expectation of what your life will be and how things actually turn out. You know what I'm saying? Uh, when, when, I, when I was in second grade, I wanted to become a marine biologist. And I am not a marine biologist. Surprise. The worst part is, when I was in third grade, I really, really wanted more than anything. And for years and years and years, I wanted more than anything to be a professional basketball player. I am not a professional basketball player. There is a gap between my expectation and dreams and the cold, hard reality of my height of five foot 10. I'm five foot 10, I would love to be six feet. One time the doctors measured me at five, I think I, they measured me at five eleven and a half, which is totally wrong, but I still remember that measurement and I'm like, five eleven and a half if you round up as six feet, so I'm basically six feet, right? No, I'm five foot 10 and I never will be a professional basketball player. That ship has sailed. Um, but any worldview or system that you deal with has to grapple with the gap. So uh, let's think about other gaps that we experience. In whenever you start something new, you come to it with expectations, and often you find that your expectations are misplaced. So uh, let's see, do you, do you, wanna, you want me to use like a nerdy example? Okay, fine. Let me use an example of marriage, okay? And even fatherhood, because it's Father's Day, right? Uh, when, when, uh, when you get married, or when you have a kid, you have all kinds of expectations about what life your life will be. And it is very, very different <laughs> than what you expect. So one example of this is, um, you know, I love my wife. We have a great marriage. We fit so well together. We work so well as a team. There are so many things I could say about my wife. She's amazing. She's very emotionally aware. She's extremely communicative and truth-telling, which is a huge deal. Um, she is willing to apologize uh, when she gets angry at me. Uh, she comes to the realization that, oh, I was not being fair. There are a million things about my wife uh, that are so amazing. And so when we got married, I was like, man, I am the luckiest man in the world. 
and she is the most amazing woman in the world, and God has totally blessed us. And what was really interesting was, I, I really believe God has blessed us. I really believe we are a great fit together, but I still had these kind of covert expectations about what my married life would look like. And so um, we were married and uh, we were living in an apartment, we got a house, we got a dog, super happy. Um, and then we had our baby Toby, who some of you uh, can see after service. And one thing that typically happens when a child comes into the husband-wife relationship is all of a sudden there's tension. And, you know, like for me, I'm like, what, what the heck? Why is my wife spending so much attention on our baby and not paying attention to me? Like, what's going on? And yeah, like, come on, like, what's up with that? It's Father's Day. No, you have to pay attention to me today. Um, and, and that actually causes a lot, of, uh, a lot of difficulties in the relationship. Uh, caring for a young baby is extremely challenging for all kinds of reasons. You're low on sleep, you're exhausted, uh, there are so many responsibilities that you're taking care of as a couple. Uh, the responsibilities you have, like, it feels like it quadruples. You're like washing bottles, you're feeding the baby, you're waking up, you're cleaning up after the baby, you're doing your regular job, you're meeting with people, and you're exhausted, right? You're sleeping less. And so uh, what happened, uh, this was maybe like six months ago, me and Ashley got in a really big fight. And we got in this fight, and it was actually quite heated. Uh, we don't fight that often, but this was a quite heated fight. And at some point, I just had to like remove myself from the situation because we were collectively not making things any better. This was one of those fights where we were both right and we were both wrong because that's often what fights are like. It's not like there's one guilty party and one innocent party because you always think you're the innocent one, right? Like she's misunderstanding me. No, no, no. In this one, it was very clear that we were both guilty. Um, I was like, I was not on the same page with her when it came to how she was feeling about how the household was running. What I mean is like, you, you always have to delegate duties. And so like, she was like, Daniel, you're not doing enough. And then I'm like, dude, I am literally like, I feel like I'm killing myself trying to do all these things to take care of the kid. This is just par for the course. When this is just so, this is so commonplace and simple. Um, but I was very upset. And so I went into our garage and I was praying and I was talking to God. And God revealed to me um, through a passage that I was actually like going to preach on. Uh, I had expectations about my marriage that are, that are totally out of place. And I was running into a harsh reality. This is my expectation. My expectation was... Uh, and we have these as Christians. We have these, even if you're not a Christian, we all have expectations. My expectation was this, and this was really what God was, I think, revealing to me. Um, I had a, a subtle expectation that because I was a pastor, I would not experience suffering and difficulty in my marriage. That's a really bizarre expectation that I had, but I still had it. I'm like, God, if, if I'm like serving you, like, won't you make our marriage like great and perfect and I never have to go through that difficulty? But what's so incredible is that expectation is not in the Bible anywhere. The, the expectation is not promised and the reality is something very different. So but like, I'll, just, I'll just finish the story to start off. Like, what, what's so cool to me is 
If you actually set your expectations based on what scripture says, it actually gives you incredible strength and wisdom for getting through these kinds of conflicts and seeing the goodness in these conflicts. Um, I'll just, I'll just end the story because what, what, what happens is if I tell a story that I don't finish at the beginning and I'm like, I'll get back to it, I always forget to tell the end of the story. So the, the end of the story is basically like through God telling me, like, why do you expect that you won't suffer in your marriage just because you're a pastor? Um, I was able to think through different passages. Like, for example, there's one where it says, do not see, be surprised when fiery trials come upon you as though something strange were happening. This is a really interesting, this is a letter written to Christians, and he's saying, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you, as though something strange were happening. Peter is saying, it is absolutely normal for you, and so set your expectations to say, as a Christian, or as not a Christian, you will go through these gaps where your expectation for life does not meet. So you could say that you could call this disappointment. Disappointment with different areas of your life, with your job, with your relationships, um, your singleness, or your marriage. Like, we all have these gaps where we expected it would be different, we expected it would be better, but there's a gap. And so now, any faith or truth or worldview that uh, is worthwhile has to address these types of gaps and give you a way forward. And in this passage, what Paul is doing is he is telling the Galatian Christians, when you have these gaps, uh, it is so common for us to respond to them in a certain way. Um, but let me talk a little bit more about saying, uh, more specifically Christian gaps that we experience before I get into that. Um, so there's the ex expectations reality gap. There's the sanctification gap. That's a fancy word for like, your growth or trajectory as, as a Christian. So we believe that if you're a Christian, um, God basically, through his spirit in you, uh, he basically grows you in your character, in your inner life, in your joy, in your peace, in your contentedness. And so there's this expectation we have where after you've been a Christian for a certain period of time, you think to yourself sometimes in moments of doubt, like, shouldn't I be further than I am now? Shouldn't my life be more different? Shouldn't my anger problems be better by now? Shouldn't I be more patient with my, my son? And so you, you sometimes think to yourself, like, why is there this gap here, the sanctification gap? Another one that people experience, the Christian experience gap, where when you read about believers in the New Testament, they say things like, you have joy unspeakable and full of glory or you have peace that surpasses understanding, or uh, Jesus says, uh, come to me you who are he uh, heavy laden and I will give you rest. So then you ask this question, why doesn't my life have more experience of God's rest, his love, his peace? Now, this is why Paul uses this example, an illustration of Sarah and Hagar. And as I was reading this, again, I did this a while back where I'm like, it's kind of funny, um, on Father's Day, or on Mother's Day, I preached about fathers. On Father's Day, this one is about mothers. So it's kind of weird, I, I should have reversed it. But this passage is actually very obscure when we come to it. And as I was reading, you probably have no clue what's going on. Um, I hope that I can explain a little bit of what Paul is talking about, but let me say it like this. Paul looks at the Galatian church, they are experiencing a gap 
in their life, and there are teachers or people who want to give them the answer or the secret to a deeper Christian life. Um, And so what he's saying is, in verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He's saying, I want to help you. I want to counsel you in that gap. And then do you know what he does? He goes on to our passage. And you're like, what? This is some like obscure, weird theological example. I don't know who Hagar is. I don't know what is, what's going on. Mount Sinai, Arabia, what's going on? You're just like, question mark, question mark. And uh, I want to kind of unpack the, what, how Paul is using this illustration as a way to say his approach to dealing with the gap is very different than the way we naturally respond, okay? So, um, so here are kind of the points that I want to get through. There are two different responses to the gap that we'll see in this passage. We're going to find out what's possible when we experience these kinds of gaps. And then we're gonna see the power of God's promises to get through those gaps, okay? So two responses, Sarah and Hagar illustrate two different responses to the gap. We're gonna see what's possible in the gap and then the power of the promise. Okay, so let's look at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do not listen to the law. For it is written that Abraham had two sons one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. For Paul's audience, Abraham would have been like a founding father. He would have been like uh, kind of like their, um, he would have been like their hero. They would have studied his life carefully. They would have emulated him in every way. And he's talking to these people, these Galatian Christians, who, though they are free from the law, want to put themselves under the law again. And the question that you have to ask is, what was leading them to desire to be under the law? Why would they want to go back under the law? And when you kind of, what do you call it, reverse engineer the situation here, what I think you'll find is um, when the Galatian Christians uh, were experiencing gaps in their lives, it made them susceptible to the teachers who are coming in and saying, I know the secret to being acceptable for God and experiencing more victory and freedom and triumph in your life. And it has to do with being circumcised, performing the ceremonial law, going back to these Jewish things. And so these people who are teaching these things, they would have been extremely influential. They would have been probably very charismatic and eloquent. And this is why Paul is so, uh, so flabbergasted because they are bringing them back into slavery. And so we've talked a lot about how uh, religiosity and a system of rule keeping uh, actually leads to slavery. And then he goes and uses this illustration. So uh, okay, this is a bit, but let me explain this illustration. Um, Abraham had a relationship with God. And one day... When Abraham, uh, God came to Abraham, and this was when Abraham was in his 80s. So this was an elderly man, and God came to him and promised him that he would have a son, that him and his wife Sarah, who were both in their 80s, would have a child. A child would be born to them. And Abraham obviously is like, and Sarah obviously is like, how is that possible? 
And so what it says here is, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Abraham had a promise from God, and Abraham believed in that promise, but he had an expectation that God would fulfill that promise. But he had no clue how God would do it because it seemed to be impossible. And so let's think about the perspective of Sarah for a second. Um, Sarah is a woman who's in her 80s, and she knows that it is physically impossible for her to have a kid. And, and yet God bring and this would have been a great source of shame. And uh, in a sense, she would have felt inferior and lesser because of her inability to be fertile. Back in this culture, and we'll talk about this in the next example too, back in this culture, it was a really, really big deal that you were able to bear kids as a woman. And, I mean, even now to some degree, there is a stigma against uh, being infertile or being single or not being able to have kids. But it was like that probably a thousandfold more back then. And so this was a woman who was racked with shame, and other people would have looked at her and been like, oh, Sarah, you know, she, she can't do it. She can't have kids. This is an extremely sensitive subject for many of us. Um, and so what Sarah did was Sarah took one of her servants, Hagar, and this was actually a practice that they would have done, where if the wife could not bear a child, they could use a, a servant woman or servant girl, and the husband would um, uh, impregnate the servant girl, and that heir would count as Abraham's son, right? And so uh, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Hagar, um, Abraham impregnating Hagar, and Hagar gave birth to a son named Ishmael. Um, now, in this story, and this is what they would have known, Hagar was a negative example of a certain type of approach to God. Uh, what I would say is, when you deal with the gap, when you run into the gap, our tendency is to, and uh, you can go to the next slide, um, our tendency to the gap can be characterized by this. This is one approach that can be, that can be um, this is why Paul is using, blah, blah, blah. Paul is using this to illustrate our tendencies when we come to this gap. When you want your marriage to be better, when you want your relationship with your kids to be better, when you want your spiritual life to be better, your grades, your work to be better, what's one tendency that we have? And I would characterize this as like reactivity, panic, effort, something like that, where there is a problem, what I'm doing is not working, so I want to change it up, right? We go to uh, YouTube, we go to influencers. If you have a health problem, you go to a, an influencer on YouTube who says, I had Crohn's disease, but then I had, took these supplements, and then all of a sudden my health problems got better. Or you wanna lose some weight, you go to this influencer. They say, uh, if you only, if you do my diet, I, I just came up with this, if you do my all water diet, you can lose weight really, really quick. You only drink water, it's so smart, right? And look at my results, and then they you know, show off their body, whatever it might be. Um, so you change it up. Within the Christian life, when we respond to the sanctification gap, the Christian experience gap, this is a tendency we have, especially when we're, we feel like we're stuck. We think that we're doing something wrong, and there's a different Christian technique that we have to use to improve our lives. And so it could look like this, it could be, I want to go to a Christian conference where they promise that you can have a deeper relationship with God if you, un if you buy my materials or if you attend my conference. Or if your church is feeling stale, 
you say to yourself, if I just went to that other church, I would be doing so much better now. Or if there was a new leader, if there's a new pastor, if, like, if I was able to take down Daniel as, as one of the pastors, we'd be in such a better place. The, if you're honest with yourself, you know what this is like. You're reactive. You, you panic at the gap because you think to yourself, why, why am I like this? Why aren't things different? And then you react, you panic, and then you try to do more effort, right? You, you double down. You try twice as hard to do the new um, prayer regime or whatever it might be. And inevitably, what happens is you find yourself disillusioned, where the new technique, which promised to change your life with God, didn't actually do that. Do you know what I mean? So it's a new Bible study plan, a new way of reading the Bible that's totally different than everyone else, um, or a new way of thinking, like if you're non-charismatic, maybe you go to a church with charismatic gifts. If you're charismatic and you're like, I don't know why I don't experience God more, go to non-charismatic. We, we try all kinds of different things to deal with this gap, and it, it leads to disillusionment. Um, and then finally, the cycle repeats itself. You're disillusioned because the new conference speaker thing didn't work, so then you double down, it didn't work, you're disillusioned, you try a different conference speaker, you double down, try again, effort. So it's this, it's this pattern, right? You react, you're afraid, you panic, you put in effort. But the way Paul, um, the, the way, this is a recipe for disillusionment, and this is how Paul is using this illustration. Um, Abraham and Sarah had an expectation that God will fulfill a promise when there was a gap between what God promising and fulfilling the promise, they panicked, they reacted, they tried to use human means to accomplish God's tasks. Um, so uh, there are a few things that we can kind of take from the example. This is how Paul is using the illustration, and this is a recipe for disillusionment in your Christian life. Um, when you expect God to do things he never promised he would, you will be disillusioned with God. I expected God to make my marriage perfect. He never promised that, he never promised that because I'm a pastor, my marriage would be perfect. That is a recipe for me to be disillusioned with God, especially if, I don't, if we don't articulate those uh, kind of covert expectations that we have. Number two, and again, this is the Sarah and Abraham example, we expect to do, God to do things according to our timetables, where when God promises something for us, God promises us, us eternal life. God promises us joy in our life and peace beyond understanding. Um, we expect God to do these things according to our timetables, where are you actually willing to go with him uh, and follow his way, the way of Jesus, um, and trusting that his way will actually bring results? So let me, let me use an example. Um, uh, I enjoy exercise, and I in particular enjoy weightlifting. There's a thing that I notice for some people who get into exercise and weightlifting, um, they want to go to the fanciest gym that has every single machine in existence. And so if they wanna do an exercise that exercises their shin, they have that machine. If they wanna exercise this muscle, there's a machine for that. And what's really funny is they go online and then they look at all these different fad exercise influencers and they buy that product and then they, they try that out for like, you know, a day, if that, and then they get bored and they move on to the next one, right? What they're, what they're doing is they have a desire for novelty. They're, they buy the promises of the people who say, this 
machine will fix. It does something different that no one ever else has done. And if you want to be fit, you do this. Um, that's one way to approach physical health. But what you're not doing is you're not uh, using time and you're not trusting the process. You're not investing the proper amount of time to let the promise reach its fulfillment. Where if you're following a specific person who's like, you need to walk regularly, eat vegetables, drink water. I mean, you eat other stuff too. And then you have some kind of exercise routine. That is great advice. You follow the advice and it takes time, but then over time, the fulfillment comes, right? Where you, you see results. In the same way, when God makes promises, we want him to immediately change us in the way that we want. We want him to immediately fix all our problems. But God never promises that. And all throughout scripture, the example of Abraham, why does Paul use the example? He is an example of there being a gap between when God promises what he will do and when God fulfills it. So for Abraham, he was 86 when he had Ishmael. And God made him wait, him and Sarah, 14 more years where they didn't have a son. In, in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, God promises that he'll have a son. And there's a gap. Do you know when Isaac is born? In chapter 21. There's a six-chapter gap where Abraham is doing all kinds of stuff with God. And so this whole time, Abraham had to wait. And so this is actually the purpose of the illustration, where Paul is saying, we respond reactively to these gaps, but Abraham responds with faith or trust or hope, which is a personal confidence that God will keep his promises. And this is a completely different way of operating. This is a completely different way of operating. Um, there's a theologian named Francis Schaeffer who talks about this gap. And he says this. He says, if you are a believer, you will experience substantial healing in every area of your life over the course of time. And he uses that phrase very carefully. He says, substantial. He is not saying complete healing. He's not saying everything will be perfect in your life but you will experience major, substantial healing in your life. But then he qualifies that by saying, but not everything will be healed. Because we don't expect everything in our lives to be perfect until Jesus comes back again. And so I would say, expect substantial healing in your lives, in your relationships, with your anger problem, whatever it might be, expect substantial healing but let God work on his timetable. And then the second thing is expect, um, expect God to accomplish things not according to your own means, where you react, where you make effort, you think it's all on you to find the right, right technique, but let him accomplish things in his way. Where Abraham and Sarah, God accomplished it supernaturally and miraculously. And this is where Christianity is a supernatural religion and if you believe only in material things, it doesn't really make sense, but these are our presuppositions. We think that God is not only someone who incrementally changes you through self-help and improvement. That's not how God works. God takes a dead person and makes them alive. God takes an infertile person and gives her a child. And that's not to say that every single infertile person will have a child, but this is, this is the type of God, this is who God is. If God uh, can do the immaculate conception where Jesus was born by the Holy Spirit, that's what we believe. We believe Jesus died on a cross and rose again. That's what we believe. 
then there is no reason why you can't expect that God can do something supernatural and powerful in your life to bring change in an area where you feel like there's no hope for you. In an area where you're extraordinarily ashamed, God can bring peace and God can bring a sense of, uh, what do you call it, like uh, self-worth, even though you don't have what you expected when you began your life. And then, um, uh, let's keep going. So, one of my seminary profs would always say, uh, use spiritual means to accomplish spiritual tasks. And so, again, the contrast between Abraham and Isaac is, and Abraham and Ishmael is, they tried to use natural means to fulfill God's promise. With Abraham and Isaac, they simply trusted God and waited for God to fulfill his promise. Um, and so this is actually a big reason that Paul draws a contrast. Um, when, when it comes to our growth as Christians and the sanctification gap, what Paul is saying is walking with God is more like Abraham trusting God even when there is a gap than it is like Abraham and Ishmael where in the gap you take action and make effort and use your ingenuity, your human abilities to make yourself better or to change. Do you kind of understand what I'm saying? What, what, what might that look like in our lives? For me in the marriage example, um, the way that this, the way that, that, uh, that, the way that God worked in that fight and through the reflection, processing, and communication afterwards is kind of like this. I thought I would never suffer in my marriage. God said, I never promised that. And then God said, do you know what? What's so incredible about the way I work is I can take the suffering of the fight and I can redeem it into something good where it changes your character. It makes me more appreciative of my wife. Um, it lets me understand how God uses suffering to accomplish his means. So my, like, I learned so much from that fight. I learned that I was not on the same page with my wife, that she was struggling in areas that I didn't realize she was struggling. So I come to a deeper understanding of where she's at. Um, not only that, we like, were able to communicate through it, and we came to, like, in a sense, unity by the end, where we're like, we both love each other, we care for each other, we want to try to do better. Um, but if I were to like, kind of force it and try to fix it and like, you know, I'm gonna buy you flowers, I'm gonna do all these things to make, that's, that's not the way that God works. That's not the way that marriages get fixed. Um, so my professor would say, you have to use spiritual means to accomplish spiritual tasks. And this applies to church growth. Um, it applies, so uh, like why, like, you know, and many times in our church history, people have kind of been worried, you know, like, why is our, why is our youth group, like, growing smaller? Or why is our English congregation contracting? And the typical response, the children's ministry is struggling, the typical response is to panic and react and say, new strategies, more effort, like, let's try to do all these things. And what my seminary prof would say is, use spiritual means to accomplish spiritual tasks. It's not to say that we don't strategize or organize or put in effort, but where does the growth, where does the change, who accomplishes the outcomes in this? With the example of Abraham and Isaac, who made Abraham able to have a son? Was it his ingenuity, his effort, was it Sarah's effort, or was it God's miraculous supernatural power? This is the way Christianity works. 
When you feel hopeless, when you feel stuck, rather than saying, I'm going to use hard work to change myself and improve myself, you could say instead something like this, God, you promise that you will bring me inner satisfaction and joy in you. Can you help me? And then rather than saying, I'm taking initiative, I'm making this happen, you say, God, help me to be open to the ways you are working in my life and give me some guidance, right? Help me figure out what I should do so that you can work and so that you can do something that changes. And honestly, this is like the exercise fad thing. Sometimes the answer is very, very mundane. What I mean is, for Paul, Paul didn't say, try this new thing. He said, stick to the thing you already know, the gospel of grace. Stick to the basics, the fundamentals. So back to the exercise example. You want to be fit? You want to get stronger? You want to put on mass if you're a guy? Do bench press, military press, back squats, deadlifts. You just do those four things three times a week for five years, and you will be so much stronger. It's very, very simple exercise advice, but it is not easy to continue in or to stand firm in. And in the same way, how does God work change in our lives? Very simple, mundane means of grace. We talk to him. We hear from him through scripture. We spend time eating together and praying for each other. These are very, very simple, obvious. There's nothing flashy or novel about them. But this is the way that God actually changes us over time. These are spiritual means. Now, I want to end with this. What's possible in the gap? When we experience this gap between what God promises and his fulfillment, um, Paul uses this next illustration, which is unbelievably beautiful. He says, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. So right off the bat, another example. There is a woman who cannot give birth. And in this example, it says, um, it seems like she might just be single. You know, she doesn't have anyone. She is a barren woman who does not bear. And the, the scripture says, rejoice. And you're like, what? When there is such a gap between her expectations of what she thought her life would be and what is possible for her, how is it possible to rejoice? And then the poetry keeps on going, break forth and cry aloud. So not only is she rejoicing, she's singing. She's shouting with joy. You who are not in labor, the person who can't go into labor, who can't have a kid, she can rejoice, she can cry aloud. Why? The children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And what this, what's really interesting going on here is rather than responding with her own effort, it is possible to rejoice in the gap by remembering and trusting the promise. What's really interesting here is it says rejoice now for the children, your children will be more. You get that? Rejoice now because the promise will be fulfilled in the future. And this is really, really crazy. This is all throughout scripture. Um, this is the power of God's promise. So uh, there is a comedian named John Mulaney. Uh, maybe, maybe a few people know John Mulaney. He was a writer for SNL. And uh, he is recently disgraced. He went into scandal and some like, he went to rehab and the different things going on. Uh, but before that, really, really, everyone loved him, well-known comedian. 
And he, when he was a writer at SNL, he, um, Mick Jagger, the lead singer of the Rolling Stones, was the guest host. And so John Mulaney describes how in the week leading up to the performance, uh, he was spending time with Mick Jagger alone in a room writing jokes with him. And he says, it's really funny, you know, he, people ask John Mulaney, is Mick Jagger nice? And John Mulaney's like, no, he's not nice. Or I guess he is nice considering that Mick Jagger's life is very different than my life. Mick Jagger for 50 years has performed to stadiums of 20,000 people and they applaud him and shout for him like he's a god. And because of that, Mick Jagger is not going to be nice in the way we typically think about it, right? And then he goes on to say this, Mick Jagger does not act like we do. Um, when we want something, we ask so politely. We're like, Henry, can you please, can you get me a glass of water? You know, like, I'm really parched. Please, can you get it for me? And he's like, Mick Jagger does not act like that. He says, Diet Coke, you know, because he's British. He says, Diet Coke. And then John Lee says, a Diet Coke appears in his hand out of nowhere. Because, because Mick Jagger is so important that there is always someone who is looking out for Mick Jagger's every need, and the words of Mick Jagger have power. Now, here's something really crazy. When we think about the promises of God, we don't think they have power the way Mick Jagger's words have power. But with God, his words are the exact same thing as him making something reality. Mick Jagger says Diet Coke, all of a sudden a Diet Coke materializes. God is like that to the nth degree. When God says, let there be light, there is light. And so here's something really crazy. When New Testament writers talk about God's promises, they are so sure that God will keep his promises that they treat the future as if it's already happened. What I mean is, when God says, you will be totally sanctified and healed, they say, you already have been sanctified and healed. One example from Romans 8, Paul says, those who God called, he uh, justified, and those who he justified, he glorified. It's past tense, and glorified means you will be perfectly healed and set free in, in the future when Jesus returns. And so Paul is saying, you already have been glorified. The only way he can say that is because when God speaks, when God makes a promise, his promise is unbreakable. He will always make it happen. And so the future is now. If God promises that you will experience substantial healing in your life, that is right now true because he will accomplish it. And that's how sure of a thing it is. That's like when you have someone who you really, really trust. There's someone you know who never lets you down. If they say they're going to do something, they will always do it. I'm not like that. <laughs> that's really, really difficult, isn't it? Do you know someone like that? God is like that to a million the nth degree. And so when God says, I promise those who have passed away will be resurrected in the last day, that is a sure thing. And so we can rejoice in that. When he says in this passage, even if you're barren, even if you don't have anything in this world that people, like, people praise, if you feel like you have nothing, God says you will have more children than the one who has a husband. Even if your circumstances are never changed in the way you expect, you're dealing with this gap 
and this gap is intractable, which means it will never change over the course of your life, you can rejoice right now because of God's promises and the power of his promises. And this is a totally different way of relating to God. This means when I start to try a new exercise, look, I'm, I'm trying bench pressing, squatting, military press, deadlift, and after a day of doing it, I look in the mirror, I'm like, am I different at all? You don't think to yourself, like, oh my gosh, this clearly doesn't work, and you stop it. Instead, you say, I trust the process, and I trust the person who said to me, if you do this for five years, you will be stronger. In the same way, if you trust God's promise, when he says, this is how you will grow, and you continue to like trust him, it gives you the strength to persevere even when you feel like God's not coming through for you. You, you start to trust his promise. And God is, doesn't make you only rely on his promise. A while back, we talked about how God has given us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit encourages us and speaks truth to us and comforts us as we go through these gaps. And it is by trusting this promise that we can rejoice even when our circumstances have, haven't changed. And so what I, would say, what I would want to ask you is, do you understand God's promises? Do you even know what God promises? Do you expect that God promises you, um, you you'll have, uh, I, guess, I guess six figures in Silicon Valley is not what it used to be, but does God promise you a six-figure salary? Does God promise you you'll get into that college that you wanted? No. Does God promise you you'll have a spouse? No. But God promises you that he will give you joy even though you don't have those things, even though you experience those gaps. And so I hope the marriage example, like even though my marriage is not completely conflict-free, it's actually better because it, it makes me realize I need to grow I, as a husband and I want to love my wife better. I want to understand her better so that I can, you know, I can grow. Um, and God is shaping me through the suffering, even more than he's shaping me through comfort and pleasure and all those other things. Um, and so here's a recipe for joy. Um, uh, four things. Uh, this is kind of a process through which you can go when you face the gaps. When God doesn't come through in your life, re-examine your expectations. So think through why you're so disappointed and whether that expectation that you had is actually there, actually promised, or whether you, you just want that to be the case. Number two, know what God promises, where do you understand the promises of scripture for your life? Number three, expect God to accomplish things differently than we would, and number four, wait on God's timing. So this is the example of Abraham. Um, uh, do not react. Do not try to accomplish things according to your own strength. Don't trust in natural processes to accomplish what God is working in your life. Trust in him because his promises are so powerful and this can encourage and strengthen you if it feels like your life is falling apart. This is how good God is. This is what it means to trust in his will even when it involves suffering and death. Um, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if there be a way, let this cup pass from me, which is basically saying, God, I am suffering, and this is, this is so painful and difficult. If there is a way for you to remove this burden from me, um, I would love for you to do it, 
but he says, nevertheless, uh, your will be done, where he trusts God's way and says, even if I were to die, um, I believe that you can raise me from the dead. Even if I'm barren, you can give me children. Um, even if I am hopeless, God can restore hope to you. And this has been my experience with God. And so I just encourage you, like, put your trust in God um, because he is trustworthy. He will keep his promises. Uh, and not only that, he will encourage and comfort you when you need him the most, um, even when it feels like things are falling apart. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, uh, I pray, Father, that uh, for those of us who are really struggling with the gap, um, that you would be uh, shining truth and love and grace into our hearts in ways that would help us to trust your promises. I pray that your promises would be a refuge for us um, in whatever storms we're facing, that we would, you would give us what we need to keep going. You would show us a little bit of fruit if that's what we need to trust you and keep going. Um, but more so, Lord, I pray you would refine our faith and help us to trust you when everything seems lost, knowing that you have done the impossible many times in the past and you will continue to do it um, in the future. Um, we really love you. We thank you so much for your word. Uh, pray that this would uh, strengthen us as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.